Throughout the Old Testament, we see many pictures of Jesus. But further and deeper study of these pictures reveals a fascinating reality, that Jesus is actually Yahweh, the uncreated creator who made all things. Welcome to the show, everybody. This is the Dance of Life podcast, and my name is Tudor Alexander. Thanks so much for joining me today. As always, it's a pleasure to be with you and to discuss such interesting and fascinating things like Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, if you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe on my website, danceoflife.com. That's going to connect you to my Substack, where I basically aggregate everything that I publish, some things that can't really be published on YouTube unfortunately, but it is what it is. And actually, fortunately for you, because if you subscribe on Substack, you can watch all of my content ad-free. So make sure you check that out because it's a much better way to stay in touch. But today we're continuing our series on the Trinity. And specifically, we're going into the Old Testament, Jesus in the Old Testament, and looking at various important pictures that paint the divinity of Christ, that paint the nature of the Messiah, in the incarnation. Now, last episode, we talked about the angel of the Lord. So in in many ways, today is going to be a continuation of that. Because as you'll soon see, all these things are related. The angel of the Lord, the word of the Lord, and the name, the name of the Lord. All these things are are intimately related, excuse me. So they're very, very interesting. And I hope that today will be very interesting for you because it was interesting for me to prepare. There's just so much to learn in the Old Testament. There really is. And I think that as Christians, it behooves us to really know our Old Testament very much so. But we did talk about the angel of the Lord. And last week we looked at how this figure, this mysterious figure, claimed to be God, Yahweh, received worship and took responsibility for Yahweh's actions, like freeing the Israelites from slavery and such. So Very, very important because that's a very unique thing. There's no messenger in the Bible that ever behaves this way. Now, next episode, I'm going to uh, discuss the idea that Archangel Michael is Jesus. And this is a belief by Jehovah's Witnesses. I think some Seventh-day Adventists subscribe to this belief, um, which is wrong. Archangel Michael is his own being. He's not a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. And for very good reason, and as you'll soon see, Today, comparing last time and also next time when we talk about Archangel Michael, you'll see a very big difference between the angel of the Lord and how he behaves and acts and people like Archangel Michael or Gabriel for that matter. So it's very important that we understand that these actions that the angel of the Lord has is are unique to him. No other messenger, and remember messenger doesn't mean different ontology, it means function. What is your function? doesn't say, you know, what your ontology is. That messenger could be God. And of course, if God is tripersonal, multipersonal, then one of the persons could be functioning as a, quote, messenger, even though that person is still God. Very interesting. And that's what we looked at with the angel of the Lord. We looked at his interactions with Abraham, with Gideon, with uh, Manoah, which was Samson's uh, father, Moses, the prophets, Job, all of these different interactions that paint this picture of this figure, this very mysterious and very interesting figure that is called the angel of Yahweh. And and it's very clear, really, when you come down to it, that there is a, a distinction between this figure and 
the incorporeal Yahweh that, that you don't see. Because even though there's all of these things that obviously these, this person is claiming to be God and, and Yahweh, the, the uncreated God, at the same time, he speaks in third person. All the time, multiple times, there's whenever there's an interaction with the angel of the Lord, he's always going between first person and third person, which is very, very interesting. Again, if you understand that God is multipersonal, it's a very interesting thing to see that communication. Very, very interesting. And of course, the Jews had two powers in heaven as a theology up until around the second century. So for several centuries, the Jews themselves wrestled with this dilemma, with this dilemma, because of course you're monotheist. You believe in one God, but God has revealed to you that he is multipersonal through the angel of the Lord and you know, the third person Yahweh with the, with the unseen Yahweh, the incorporeal Yahweh. And so the Jews believed in this idea of two powers in heaven. We looked at that. We looked at a dissertation that was quoted by Michael Heiser from a Jewish rabbinical scholar. So these things aren't made up. These are historically documented things that the Jews believed. They were at least binatarians, meaning they, they believed in two persons of the, of the divine Godhead. And in the New Testament, of course, Jesus reveals that as three persons. And then we look back and we say, oh, okay. Because we're going to have an episode here coming up, not next time because we're talking about Michael, but after that, we're going to look at the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, which it's a tough study because the Holy Spirit is not, he's the least obvious of the persons. The Son, the Father, they're, they're much more obvious. And so in the New Testament, we see him very obviously. But now that we understand that, we can go back to the Old Testament and, and look for these things because you should always use the New Testament to interpret the Old, not the other way around, like dispensationalists do, like sacred name people. We're going to talk a little bit about that. A lot of people are still stuck in the Old Testament, so you want to avoid that. But the Jews had a two powers in heaven theory, and they declared that theory a heresy sometime around the second century, which was right around the time when Christianity started to flourish and spread. So I wonder if there's a coincidence there. I'll let you be the judge of that. But today we're going to look at some very interesting additional clues that that show us not just the nature of the Messiah, but the divinity of Jesus, the identity of Jesus as both human and, very importantly, Yahweh as God. Very, very interesting. And these are the word and the name, the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, and the name of Yahweh, which are very interesting in the Old Testament because they're personified. This is, this is the thing to get from today. These things are personified. And you'll see what I mean by that. It's a, just a very fascinating study. But we're going to look at um, the idea of agency. Actually, I'm going to do that next time with Michael. I was going to do it today, but I think it's more appropriate to look at that with Archangel Michael the principle of agency, which I should have talked in the Angel of the Lord episode, which was last week, but I, I think it'll be more appropriate with the uh, Archangel Michael because Archangel Michael is an agent, right? And he's doing things on behalf of God, but he does them in a very different way than the Angel of the Lord. So we'll look at that next week. But all of these things are really related. In the last episode, the today, the next episode, these three episodes are really kind of tied together. So make sure if, if this is your first time joining that you go back and watch some of those previous episodes so that you have a, 
a full understanding with this because it's just such a fascinating study, especially to arm yourself against people who say that Jesus is not God, that Jesus is just a messenger, that, you know, whatever else, that Jesus isn't divine or he's less divine than God. All these different arguments, Unitarianism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, there's so many different types of argumentations these days. And certainly we are we have addressed several of them, and we're going to address even more of them in a few episodes. Towards the end of the series, I have a planned episode to address all the various heresies, partialism, modalism, Unitarianism, binitarianism. We're even going to look at something called monarchical Trinitarianism, which is something that a lot of people believe. And some people believe it, they don't even know they believe it, but it's wrong. And I'll prove that to you, hopefully. But let's get going. So today we're looking at the word of Yahweh and the name of Yahweh and how they're personified. Now the word, the word of Yahweh, that phrase is used throughout the scriptures. The word of the Lord came to me. And of course, it's the word of Yahweh came to me and, you know, etc. But there are instances where, again, these are, you have to remember, these are types and shadows. So we're not dealing with very overt things, but they're shadows. They're designed to create a an interesting longing for, for revelation, for clarity, because it's it's very, it's confusing to some degree. Like what just happened is basically the, the feeling. And so there's these instances where the word of Yahweh comes to these prophets or, or people, and there's a personification going on. Again, it's just not clear. It's just very interesting. And so we're going to go through some of these examples. And the point is that the word of the Lord or the word of Yahweh is not just, you know how people today say like, oh, a word came to me and I have this word for you. All the charismatics have the words for you all the time, like like an idea or something you need to say. It's not just that. That's my point today is that the word of Yahweh, as you'll soon see, hopefully, is not just like, oh, I have to, to write this down or I have to say this. It's It's a personalized experience. It's something, someone is there. This is, this is the thing that the Old Testament kind of leaves you with, which is just, again, fascinating. But let's look at a few examples. This is the first one's in Genesis uh, 15, 1 through 4, God's covenant with Abram. After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my house will be the heir. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own shall be your heir. So, so in this interchange, it seems like, you know, like Abram's having a vision, and there's there's something that God is telling him, but he's conversing. He's conversing with the word of Yahweh. Do you, do you see kind of the, the underlying subtext here is that He's conversing with the word of Yahweh. It wasn't like the word of Abram, the word of Yahweh came to Abram, and then, you know, this is what Abram says as on behalf of the Lord. No, he's conversing with the word of Yahweh. And if you look, for example, in, so there's this conversation, but then all the way in verse 9, he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old and a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. So suddenly we, we go from he, the word of Yahweh came to Abram and he's having this conversation. And then like verse seven, 
And he said to him, I am Yahweh who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And suddenly it's a he. It's personalized. Well, it doesn't say that like there's a body there or, or God showed up. It just says the word of Yahweh came to Abram. Very interesting, isn't it? And you'll see how all of these attitudes that I'm reflecting to you are actually Jewish in origin. What I'm about to open up here is actually, this is not anything new. This has been talked about even by Targums and rabbinical sources and other things. People were wrestling with the same things. So the next one is Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. This is uh, the call of Jeremiah. Now the word of Yahweh came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But Yahweh said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid for them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares Yahweh. Then Yahweh put out his hand and touched my mouth. So again, up until verse 9, it just seems like it's not clear because, again, the word comes to to Jeremiah, and then he's having a conversation, and Yahweh said to me, so the word came, but then Yahweh's there and speaking to him, and then you have an even more personal detail, which is, then Yahweh put out his hand and touched my mouth, and Yahweh said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. So the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, then he's having a conversation with presumably the word, that's the noun. And then the word or Yahweh reaches out and touches Jeremiah's lips and basically gives him knowledge. So you you have this personification of the word of Yahweh. It's not just like, oh, I have to say this or I have to write this down. It's, it's an experience with God. It's an encounter with God. Very, very interesting. Now, this next one's from Kings, 1 Kings 19, verses 4 through 11. It's with, Eli, uh, with Elijah. And I believe he was just, you know, he just basically conquered the prophets, and now he's running away from Jezebel, and he wants to die. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, Yahweh, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. So if you ever feel discouraged, just read this passage in the Old Testament. such a great passage where God treats Elijah with such tenderness and care. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he took, and he looked, and behold, and there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of Yahweh, so now it seems that the angel who showed up was actually the angel of Yahweh, it was God, came again a second time, that's confirmation, and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Very interesting. Now, verse 9, the Lord speaks to Elijah. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Yahweh came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, the Lord God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, 
and they seek my life to take it away. Verse 11, and he said, go out and stand on the mount before Yahweh. Third person, by the way. And behold, Yahweh passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces in the rocks before Yahweh, but Yahweh was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but Yahweh was not in the earthquake. So you have this situation where he's encountering God physically. There's a physical encounter. Now notice the sequence here. In the first couple verses, he's running away. The angel of Yahweh comes, this physical person, feeds him uh, twice and kind of gives him some encouragement to go. Then when he goes to the mountain of God, Horeb, He's in a cave and he's lodging and the word of Yahweh came to him. But the word of him says, and he said, he is personal. The word of Yahweh is personal. And he said, the word said, meaning the word is a he. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah's saying, look, they're trying to kill me. And then he said again, the word of the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain before Yahweh. So again, you have, this is just so interesting because again, it repeats this, this theme of Elijah's encountering Yahweh, but Yahweh's the, the encounter that he's encountering, in this case now it's the word, wasn't the angel anymore. Maybe they're the same, we'll find out. But they are, the word is speaking in third person of Yahweh. Do you see, do you see what's going on here? Not only is the word personified, but he's also speaking of third person of Yahweh. He says, go out, and stand on the mount before Yahweh. He's not saying go out and stand on the mount before me as I pass by. Go out and stand on the mount before Yahweh as Yahweh passes by. But wait a minute, aren't you Yahweh? You see the the interactions here and how, the, again, they, they leave you with a hungering for clarity because this is not, if you don't have the revelation of God's multi, you know, uh, multi, I don't want to say multi-personality, multiple persons within God, the multiple, multiple distinctions within God. He's multi-personal. I mean, he's basically has plurality within himself. He's one being with three persons. If you don't have that revelation, if you don't understand that that doesn't contradict monotheism, that this is a unique aspect to God's consciousness or being, nature of being, if you don't understand that, then you look at these things and it's just like, why is it worded this way? You know that the Bible is very intentional about the words that it uses. Why is the word personified? Why does it seem like the word is a person? Did Elijah, like if you read this just naturally and all these things that I'm going through, the natural impression is that the word is a person. It's some sort of personal experience that Elijah's having. It's, he's not crying out to heaven and like there's a voice that's coming from thundering from heaven and just like yelling at him or he's yelling back. You, you don't get that sense from these conversations. The sense that you get, if you just read this naturally and plainly as you should, is that the word of Yahweh came to him and he said this and Elijah said that and he said, it's like, well, wait a minute, is there, is there a conversation going on here? Who's he talking to? Like intimately, like face to face. That's the word. The word is personified. Very, very interesting. Now there's one more in Samuel that I want to look at. This is in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. Now Samuel did not yet know Yahweh, and the word of Yahweh had not been revealed to him. 
So this is a this is such a fascinating statement. Because as you see in context, this is more than just learning to prophesy. The word of Yahweh had not been revealed to him. And the and Yahweh called Samuel again the third time, and he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that Yahweh was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you and you say, you shall say, Speak Yahweh, for your servant hears. So Samuel went away and lay down in his place. And Yahweh came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel said, Speak for your servant hears. Isn't that, I mean, all of this stuff is just so fascinating to me because, again, you have these shadows of a personal, a personalized word of Yahweh. Now, what I didn't read in the previous um, verses with Elijah is that, you know, there's all these supernatural things that happen. There's an earthquake, but Yahweh wasn't in the earthquake. There's, you know, this sound, it wasn't in the sound. And by the time it gets to the end, it says there was a whisper, and Yahweh was in the whisper. It's just so fascinating. Again, it gives you this idea like there's an intimate experience here. The word of Yahweh, when the word of the Lord comes to the prophet, it's it's a personalized, intimate, close experience. And that's what you see here with Samuel before he was basically made into a prophet, was that the word had not been revealed to him. Like you haven't... you. You haven't come to the point where you know what the word of Yahweh is. It's not just like this idea that comes into your head. It's it's a personal experience. You're encountering God. It hasn't been revealed to you yet. So he's hearing these things, or maybe he's hearing that whisper, right? That 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 voice, like audibly a voice that's there, maybe not in corporeal form, but he's personally there. I don't know. I mean, it's just a very fascinating thing. And you can let me know your thoughts in the comments, but Ultimately, as you can see, right at the end of that in verse 10, it says, then Yahweh came and stood, calling as at other times. So he's standing, and he's calling the same way as he did other times. Now, if he was calling before from heaven, and it was just this thundering voice, it wouldn't be calling as at other times. Do you see the point? Like, if, he st- if Yahweh came and stood, and he's calling the same as he was before as other times, that means the other times were just like what we read in Elijah with the whisper. The Lord was in the whisper. Yahweh was in the whisper. So there is an intimate sense of visitation with the word of Yahweh. And also, again, there's personalization. When they're having these conversations, Jeremiah, the word of Yahweh, Yahweh reaches out and touches Jeremiah's lips. With Samuel, Yahweh comes and stands. But where is Yahweh? Like, there's no description of a physical manifestation, because other times when we looked at the angel of the Lord, we saw physical attributes, right? There's a man, he came and stood, he talked to Abraham. With Joshua, he was commander of the Lord's army. He has a sword. He puts his sword in the sheath with uh, David when they were working destruction on Jerusalem. There's there's physical descriptions. Here you have Yahweh coming and standing, <laughs> but there's no description of that, if if there was a body that was standing there, there's no description of it, which again, it's just so interesting. It's designed to give you this mystery. It's it's just so poetically designed to, to make you hunger for clarity with these things. Now, I want you to compare all of this to the New Testament. Again, these are just a few verses from the Old Testament. You could probably spend 
several episodes just on studying this very topic. But compare this to the New Testament where we'll look at some very interesting commentary with this. But John 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. As you'll soon learn, John is actually playing to Old Testament theologies around the Word, which we're opening up today. This is very intentional. It's designed to to show the Jews that, look, Jesus is the word from the Old Testament. He is the thing that you were recognizing as an experience from God. He's the word made manifest. And he was with God and he is God. Very, very fascinating. In Matthew 4, verse 4, it says, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we know that in John 6, verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In Hebrews 1, verse 3, he sustains the world by the word of his power. So you put it all together. The, he's the word. He sustains everyone. He's also the bread of life. The true bread is the word. Do you see how all this ties together and how Jesus reveals these things in himself? Now, I want to read you this commentary, and it's called the, In the Beginning Was the Memra. And it's, it's a very interesting commentary. Again, this is all from Jewish traditions regarding the word. In the beginning was the Memra. And I'll put citations for all these as usual in the, in the comments or in the description, actually. There may be nothing more Jewish than the idea that in the beginning was the word. It's hard to fathom, and yet the word walked among us, both subject to God and worship as God. How do the Jewish believers in Yeshua's time understand this mysterious messianic truth? The answer, will, the answer will encourage you in your faith and equip you to share that faith with others in a new and profound way. And I really hope it does. This is so fascinating. How do you explain God? If you were asked, how could the infinite creator of the universe who exists beyond all dimensions of our finite existence walk among his creation? make covenants with them, appear to them in the clouds and fire, go to battle for them, bless them, curse them, and redeem them. How do you do that? What would you say? The ancient Jewish sages pondered the same question, and they answered the memra. Memra is an Aramaic term related to the Hebrew word amer, which means word, decree, or speech. So it means the word. Sometimes the Hebrew word deber is used instead of memra, which is also, also means word as well as matter, thing, or issue. More than just the words of our Creator God, Memra and sometimes Deber convey God's many manifestations and expressions in His creation through His words. The Jewish people became intimately familiar with the Memra as the word of the Lord because they heard about it hundreds of times in the synagogues. When the Israelites returned from their exile in Babylon in the 6th century BC, most of them no longer spoke Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic. Nevertheless, the scriptures have always been read in Hebrew, even if no one in the greater community could speak it. Something had to be done so that people would understand God and his word. The sages again found an answer. After hearing a priest read a few verses of the Torah scroll in Hebrew, they then heard a translation in Aramaic called a targum, which simply means translation. In those targums, we find the memra. In the beginning was the word or the memra. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, says Genesis 1, verse 1. 
However, in the translations of this verse to Aramaic, the Jewish people learned that God had helped, that God had a helper of sorts. From the beginning with the wisdom, the Memra, the word of the Lord, created and perfected the heavens and the earth. And the Memra, the word of the Lord, said, let there be light. And there was light by his Memra, which is the word. This is in Genesis 1, but this is the, the Targum, this Targum Neophyti, Neophyti, I think it's the pronunciation. So this is from a Targum, where basically they, they explained this by using the word. Isn't that interesting? In this Targum, the word or Memra is doing, being, and acting as God, and yet we see that he is also with God, a distinct essence apart from him. In fact, the Memra is the one who rested after all his work. On the seventh day, the member of the Lord completed his work, which he had created, and there was a Sabbath. Genesis 2, verse 3, that's Targum Neophyti. And you have, you know, the pictures of these Targums. They're pretty old. I mean, they're, they're fairly, fairly old. The Apostle John grabbed hold, of his, uh, grabbed hold of this very Jewish understanding of the Memra to introduce Messiah Yeshua, who is God and yet a distinct essence apart from God. Of course, he cites John 1, 1 through 3. John is telling Jewish readers that Yeshua, as the word of God, is responsible for bringing forth life from the very beginning of our world. But John doesn't stop there. He reveals even deeper truths about this word using the Jewish understanding of light. The Memra word, the Memra, is life and light. John 1 verse 4 says, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. In a Hebrew poem called The Four Nights, the Targums write that on the first night of creation, when darkness spread over the surface of the deep, the word of Yahweh shone and gave light. This is from Jewish Targums. Isn't that interesting? Makes you really boggle your mind at the fact that they rejected Jesus. And they had all these things. The two powers in heaven, the word of Yahweh. I mean, it's just so clear. In other words, the word of, the, of Yahweh not only created light, it is light itself. This poem was... Uh, part of the Passover liturgy among many of the Jews living in and around Jerusalem at the time. So when John refers to the word as light, he is reminding them that the light of this world is so powerful, not even the darkness of space can overcome it. As we follow the light into the book of Exodus, we see the Memra, word of Yahweh, lighting up the night for the Israelites in a pillar of fire, leading them to safety. At the same time, the word of Yahweh also remained in the cloud, keeping them in darkness. This is an exodus. And of course, these are Targums kind of trying to bring clarity to the situation. Because again, you have God who is impersonal, or not impersonal, but uh, non-corporeal, right? Yahweh is, you can't see God, you can't you know, touch God. But then you also have these manifestations of God who are distinct from Yahweh, but also Yahweh. Very, very interesting. In a form of in a form the Israelites could finally see and understand, the darkness, Egyptians, could not overcome the light, Israelites, and the word of Yahweh. The Jewish people could finally see how light and God's salvation from darkness were inseparable. So, you have so many, one more thing actually, the word is the door to salvation. The one who saves people out of eternal darkness into the light of eternal life has always been the word. In the Targums, God established his covenant between Abraham and the word, this is in Targum, Onkelos, and Palestine. You can read these for yourself. But Abraham believed in the name of the word, in the Memra, and Yahweh counted him as righteousness. The divine power of the Memra to save someone from the eternal darkness of their sins is not a new concept for Jewish people. 
This Targum says the Memra would be taught, would be thought of as a deity. So, you know, it quotes these various uh, things. This is from the Jewish Encyclopedia. It's quoted actually Targum Yer. I, I don't know what this says exactly, but it's, it's quoted in the Jewish Encyclopedia. My word shall be unto you for a redeeming deity, and you shall be unto my name a holy people. So what is the point with all this? And there's a lot more you can probably read with here. I'll cite it again so you can look into it. It's very interesting stuff because, again, these are these are Jewish things. These are Jewish attitudes and Jewish beliefs, just like the two powers in heaven, just like you know the word that John uses in John 1 verse 1, and continuing from there, to, to speak about the word, that the word became flesh. The word, he's using that, that phraseology, that name, on purpose. He's appealing to already existing attitudes, that the word of Yahweh was a personified instance of Yahweh that was Yahweh, but also distinct from Yahweh. So these ideas are very old. The ideas expressed in the New Testament through John are not just John making something up. John is a Jew, and John actually was a Jew. Of course, he's going to be resurrected. But John was very much playing to and making sure that he was in line with already existing Jewish thinking so the people of his day could recognize that Jesus was the one, is the one. He's the one that's fulfilled all these things. And all those things that you were struggling with to understand in the Old Testament, where there's the angel of Yahweh, then there's the personified word of Yahweh. All the Targums are trying to figure out, okay, well, how is God creating things in the world and doing these things if he's separate from the world? It's the, He must have the word, and the word is also God, but he's separate from God. All these things were revealed in Christ. Isn't that fascinating? I think that is just so interesting. But really the thing to take of this is that the idea of a personified word of God, the word made flesh, this is actually as Jewish as it gets. It's very much in line with Hebrew tradition. And even, again, these commentaries and these targums that were trying to bring clarity to the multipersonal nature of God. John is playing off of those ideas. He's playing off of Jewish ideas with a personified word. He's playing off of two powers in heaven. Again, all these things were commonly taught during his time. Very, very interesting. The Jews believed and saw that the word of God, meaning the word of Yahweh, was also God, was a redeemer, was a deity, but also distinct from God, which is, again, very interesting. And yet, you know, again, this just blows my mind that they rejected Jesus, and they still reject Jesus to this day, even though there's all this evidence that's just so obvious if you aren't hardened of heart and stubborn in your ways. So now I want to go to the second part of this episode, which is the name, the, the theology of the name, the name of Yahweh, which again is all these things play into the nature and identity of Jesus as God, as, as Yahweh, as the uncreated creator who came in human form. So fascinating. But the name of Yahweh as a personified thing, just like the word of Yahweh, like we looked at, is also very commonly used in scripture in the Old Testament, as you'll soon see with several examples. And it's just another clue, again, that A, Jesus is Yahweh, and B, that God, Yahweh, is multipersonal in nature. It's very, very interesting. 
Now we know in Exodus 23, verse 20 through 21, this goes back to the angel of the Lord where God, Yahweh says, I've put my name in this angel. Obey him. This is verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you. And remember, angel doesn't mean, you know, like halo and wings. It just means messenger. Messenger could be anybody. It could be the second person of the Trinity that's the messenger. So don't let the word angel, because it's in English, kind of distract you. Behold, I send an angel before you, this is Yahweh speaking, to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Notice these words, and remember what Jesus says, "Go, I go to prepare a place for you, and how the physical journey of the Exodus is actually a type and shadow for our journey into the eternal state. But verse 21, pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Such a fascinating set of verses. Like, first off, obedience, we'll get into this in just a second. There's actually another verse I want to look at, which is Exodus 34, verses 5 through 6, which is, they're kind of related. The, the Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Very interesting verse. So Yahweh comes down to, to basically stand with Moses and he proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Very interesting. Again, it's like third person. He didn't say proclaim his name. He proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So again, you have this third person situation where Yahweh comes down his physical experience and he proclaims the name of Yahweh. Then Yahweh passes before him and proclaims again in the third person, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So you have, you have this multi-personal situation going on. You have the name kind of being personified in, in a way. Again, it's just the name is not just like a title. It, there's something more to this that we need to look into. Now, I want you to keep all this in mind with the Exodus and the angel of the Lord and the name of Yahweh and all these things that we just talked about with New Testament revelations. Jude 1 verse 5. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So Jesus is Yahweh. He's the one who did all these things. Now, if you remember, it's the angel of Yahweh that was basically escorting them and, and revealing himself to them supernaturally. So Jesus, now we have a picture from the New Testament that reveals that the angel of Yahweh in the Old Testament was Jesus. That was God made flesh. Of course, he wasn't in a human, humble human form. He was in a glorified type of form. But nevertheless, it was God manifest. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4, And all drank the same spiritual drink. This is the people Moses was shepherding. For they drank from the same spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Who followed them in the pillar of cloud? Who was manifesting to them as Yahweh? It was Christ. But then if you remember from Exodus 34 verse 5 through 6, Yahweh descended in the cloud. Okay, this is Jesus. Yahweh. But then Yahweh passed before him and said, Yahweh, Yahweh, the a, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, 
and abounding in steadfast love. So Yahweh is speaking in third person. He's he's multi-personal here. So Jesus is interacting with them, Old Testament, and also proclaiming God's glory because Jesus is God, and so is the Father, and so is the Holy Spirit. So very, just so, so interesting. But I want to go back to this idea of obedience, where in, in Exodus 23, he says, my name is in him, don't rebel against him. He's not going to pardon your transgressions. First off, God is not going to contradict himself. So again, if you have a, if you don't have the revelation of, of the Trinity, of multipersonal nature of God, then you have a real problem justifying that verse. Because God is asking you to obey and to not rebel against basically someone else. Now, if that someone else is not God, then you have a real problem because God is contradicting himself. You do not obey or, you know, whatever, like rebel. Rebellion doesn't matter against anybody other than God. You, Of course, yeah, you should obey your parents, but really when you're disobeying your parents, you're rebelling to your parents, you're really rebelling against God. So this is what it is. So the fact that he's commanding Moses and, and the Israelites to obey this person because his name is in him. He, this person is not just a regular messenger. He's the name of Yahweh, personified, made flesh, basically. Very, very interesting. Now, we know in Matthew 17, verse 5, that we see this again at the transfiguration. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from, God, from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So this is now, we have a, a revelation. The Father is speaking about his Son. Obey him, listen to him. This is now being, adding much more color to what you see in the Old Testament, where Yahweh is speaking to Moses about a messenger, that, an angel that he's going to send. But that angel is very special. That angel has the name of Yahweh. He is Yahweh, that Yahweh is sending. So obey him. Don't rebel against him because he won't pardon your transgressions. And now in the New Testament, we see the same thing. Very interesting. Of course, only God can pardon sins, and that's another thing to consider. You can't, it, you know, no created being can pardon your sins. It's impossible. Only God has the authority to do that. And we know that when, when Jesus was doing his ministry, he was accused of blasphemy for pardoning sins, for forgiving sins. Like they're saying like, who is this man that he can forgive sins? And he said to them, you know, what's easier forgiving sins, saying your sins are forgiven or <laughs> saying rise and walk to the cripple. Right. And so they were just blind, but ultimately we looked at this quite a bit in the episode on what did Jesus say about himself and what did others say about Jesus it's very clear that only God can forgive sins, and that's another proof that Jesus is God, that he's divine, that he's also Yahweh. He shares in the same nature, which is very fascinating. But in John 17, verses 6 through 11, where you have the high priestly prayer, Jesus famously says that he manifested the name of God. And really, this all kind of ties it together. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Very important verse for election and understanding the nature of salvation. The Father gives people to Christ. Christ, of course, is not going to lose them 
because he's the good shepherd and he redeems them and sanctifies them and the spirit basically seals them. This is Trinitarian salvation all in one verse, basically. Now, verse seven, now they know that everything that you have given, that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you have given, you gave me, and they have received them and they have come to know the truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but those whom you have given me. Again, election, for they are yours. Father didn't give everybody to Jesus. He gave a certain few people, because most people in history are not saved. So if you have a relationship with Christ, be grateful. Be grateful and realize that it could have been, it could have not been that way, and you would have never even known the difference. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even, even as we are one. The na- Keep them in your name, which you have given me. I have manifested your name. Jesus is the personified name of Yahweh. He is God made flesh. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is the revelation of the Gospels, that the name of Yahweh, the word of Yahweh, the physical presence of Yahweh is manifest in Christ. So fascinating. But look at some of these Old Testament things, like in Proverbs 30, verse 4, very interesting proverb, actually, towards the end of the book of Proverbs. Who has ascended to heaven and and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Pay attention to these two verses. Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Now, these people were being guided by the Holy Spirit to write these things. And in the Old Testament, it's it's not very clear what this means. Because God obviously doesn't have, I mean, from looking from the Old Testament, right? God doesn't procreate, doesn't have sons in that sense, like a, a, like a son. Of course, there are sons of God, like the angels. And we are adopted as sons of God. But this is a personal uh, reference in the sense, like, what is his son's name? Like, well, does God have a son? Well, yeah, he does. Yahweh is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And this is what you learn in the New Testament. And it's just so interesting because there is this longing to to learn the name of God. We'll look at this in just a second. But God's name, in this case, is equated to the Son's name and vice versa. What is his name and what is his Son's name? In the sense that, like, that name, whatever name that is, that they share is the name. That's the name that you want to know. And of course, that's God's name, which is Yahweh, which means Yahweh is one being, but he exists multipersonally. In Matthew, or sorry, Mark 4, verse 41, we see this fulfilled, meaning he's the one who wraps the, the waters around like a garment and uses the wind in his fists. And they, were with, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is an exact fulfillment of Proverbs 30, verse 4. Now, connect this with what we just talked about with the high priestly prayer. In Proverbs 30, verse 4, it says, Who is this, who is this guy? Who is, who is his son? And who, what's his name? <laughs> what, 
what is his son's name? And what is the the creator's name, right? There's this longing to know the creator's name, to, to see into intimately the creator. And Jesus says, I've manifested your name. And in, in this incident with the uh, calming of the storm, they they make the connection like he, the, the wind and the sea obey him. Just like in the Old Testament, it says, like, that would be the Messiah. That would be the one that's coming, who is a deity. The son of man vision in Daniel 7. All these things point to the divinity of Christ as God, as Yahweh, but distinct from Yahweh. This is the thing that people really trip up over, which is God has unity and also distinction within himself. If you don't get those right, you run into heresy. If everything is unified and you have just one God without multiple persons, that's not the God of the Bible. You have a lot of problems with that, with the atonement, with with salvation, with various things. The gospel is Trinitarian, and we looked at that, why it has to be. Of course, if you have too much division, then you have polytheism, right? If you think there's three gods or partialism, which we'll look at all these things in the, in the next couple episodes when we look at heresies. But again, it's just being able to reconcile and hold these two seemingly opposite things, which is distinction and unity. And that's why it's a mystery, and we're supposed to marvel at it. But what do you take from this? Well, the name was more than just a literal meaning of like God's reputation, like the name of God. It is like, of course, there's in some context, it means reputation, but there's more to the story. There's a sense of a personified name, meaning name is who? Name is your identity. It's who you are. And so for Jesus to reveal the name of Yahweh to the name of God, to make it manifest, that is the essence. He is the essence in the revelation of God. He is the, as Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, the uh, perfect, what, what is the what, radiance of the glory? Let's see. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So this is a very interesting parallel to the Genesis account that we are made in God's image. Well, that's a shadow of the incarnation that would come many thousands of years later where Jesus is the actual exact imprint and image of God. He is God made manifest. It's just fascinating, just so fascinating. But all these things are shadows. And again, through things like the angel of the Lord, through the word of, of Yahweh, all these things are shadows and types and, and really painting this picture of God is, made God is going to be manifest in this world. Imagine such a thought. I mean, such a profound thought that Christianity reveals to you through the Gospels, through Jesus. And of course, when Jesus comes in the New Testament, all these things are just like, boom, 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 revealed and just makes so much sense that when you go back to the Old Testament, they're not as confusing. They're not as confusing because we have the full revelation. Now, I want to continue. Actually, I, I want to... Yeah, I want to continue with this idea of the the name of Yahweh, but I want to touch on the fact that people craved and wanted to know this the name of God. They wanted to know, they wanted to know this intimate experience with God. This was throughout the Old Testament. In Genesis 30, 22 through 30, you know, Jacob wrestles with God, and we read this in the previous episode, but basically what what happens? Like Jacob says, you know, I'm not going to let you go please tell me your name. This is in verse 29. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? 
and there he blessed him. So Jacob knows that he wrestled with God because he made this whole altar to to the to the Lord to Yahweh there. He he recognized that he was having an experience with God. God was manifest in front of him and he wrestled with God. Of course God let him win. That was a whole foreshadowing of Jesus humbling himself. But nonetheless Jacob wanted to know what's your name? What is your name? In Judges, we see a similar kind of interchange with Manoah. And Manoah said to the angel of Yahweh, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of Yahweh said to him, why do you ask my name? Again, same question. But this time he says, seeing it is wonderful. As in like, how could you possibly understand my name in a sense? Like it's so magnificent that, you know, you, you can't even comprehend it. And this is, again, it's a picture because in Isaiah 9, verse 6, the, the, the prophecy of the Messiah is, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So anybody who doesn't believe that Jesus is God, just point them to these verses because it's just so clear. Everywhere you look in the Bible, it is a consistent message that God is going to be with man. God is going to be with man. God will be coming down to earth. God is going to be in the flesh. It's just over and over again. So when I hear people say, oh, I'm a biblical Unitarian, or I'm a you know, Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, and you know, we don't believe in the Trinity, you know, it's like, have you read the Bible? Like, I'm not even trying to be sarcastic. Like, have you genuinely read through the Bible and you have to come to these verses what do you do with them? You have to have major cognitive dissonance and twist them around in such a way that they don't read what they're supposed to read to justify your beliefs because it's over and over again that the Bible reveals this to you, that God is multipersonal, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the manifest word and name of God. All these old pictures like the word, the name, the angel of Yahweh, all personified. It's, it's all pointing to the same reality. Now, very interestingly, in Exodus, which comes after Genesis, which comes after Judges, where these interactions with the angel of the Lord, they wanted to know his name, but he wouldn't give it, N not yet. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 3, it says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. So the revelation of God's name has been in, in steps. It, it's been in steps throughout history, meaning at first when Jacob wrestled with God, he wasn't going to give him his name yet. That wasn't the time. Then with Moses, more of that was revealed. Look, here's my, my name. And we're going to look at this in just a second because even the abbreviation YHWH is not exactly what God said in the original language, which is very interesting. It's an abbreviation that was created, but the actual words, there's several words. But nonetheless, that name was basically, it's, it's God's self-existent nature as the creator. He's the only one that's self-existent, and that identifies him as the creator. So he's revealing that to Moses. And then you have the angel of Yahweh that has the name of Yahweh in him. 
So now we're, we're seeing more of that. We're seeing other things with the name, which we'll look at in just a second, where there's a personalization throughout the Old Testament as we get closer and closer to the arrival of the Messiah. And then, of course, Jesus makes the name manifest. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Hebrews 1.3, we looked at that, where he's the radiance and the exact imprint of God's nature. So you have this successive revelation of the name of God. And then, of course, the final name is Jesus. Jesus is the person. He's the one that you look to. He's God made flesh. And when he returns, it will be God with man. And we get to be in the presence of God and experience his physical being and his his face. We're going to look God in the eye. I mean, it's just, it's, it's such a profound truth to think of these things. It's like, wow, like how, I can't even, I cannot even imagine what that's going to be like. I really can't. It's just such a profoundly supernatural experience and beyond anything that I've ever experienced. Even with my imagination, it's just hard to really fully grasp the fact that God will be in the flesh and you'll be in his presence manifest through Jesus. So the name is not just about God's reputation. It is about having intimate knowledge with God. It's an intimate experience with God. And God was not going to give that name right away. He reserved it with Jacob, with Manoah, with Ek, with uh, Moses. He gave a little more of that name as the self-existent one, which again will play into what Jesus identified. And of course, Yeshua means salvation, which is the identity of God. He's the Savior. But there's many times where Jesus was accused of blasphemy, of course, where he, uh, you know, attributed that self-existent name given in the Old Testament to himself. We'll look at these examples too, because we looked at them before. But I want to continue this idea of for the name, for the name. It's more than just reputation, but it's something personal having to do with God and his multi-personal nature and his and his personal attribute in the world as a manifest as a person that is manifest. In Deuteronomy 28 verse 58 it says if you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in the book that you may fear this glorious and awesome name Yahweh your God. So fear the name. The name is very glorious and awesome. 1 Kings 3 verse 2 the people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of Yahweh. Again, it's it's this sense of, there's a personal nature there. It's not just for the reputation of Yahweh, so people know, you know, that there's a God there named Yahweh. There's, there's a sense of like, we have to build the name of Yahweh a house, if you understand what I'm saying. In Ezekiel 36, verse 22, again, it says, for the sake of the name. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Now, this sense, this has a sense of reputation in it, that I'm redeeming my reputation, I'm going to vindicate my holiness. But in context of other things, you'll see how it really ties in also to this idea that the name is more than just reputation. There's a personal quality to it. In the New Testament, we see the similar thing, the same kind of ideas. Acts 5, verse 41, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Third letter of John, chapter 1, verse 7, For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Again, you're, you're 
you're suffering for the name, you're going out for the sake of the name. There's a name theology in Matthew 28, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, some people, again, we've talked about this, some people argue that this has been added, that it wasn't part of the original manuscripts. But again, <laughs> everything is in context. People believed, the Jews themselves believed in a plurality within God before Jesus even came on the scene. So to say that this is a Trinitarian conspiracy that just is changing the Bible so that you see there's a Trinity in the Bible, no, it's not at all true. If you've seen any of the previous episodes, then you know that's not true. First and foremost, Jesus claimed to be God. We'll look at all of these things. We'll look at some highlight verses in just a second where you will see that Jesus says the same thing that Yahweh says in the Old Testament. But nonetheless, we have one more. Philippians 2, verse 9 through 11. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and on under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the name that is now finally revealed of God is Jesus. Jesus is the name that God has revealed himself through because Jesus comes from Yeshua, which means salvation. Jesus means salvation, the Savior. That's the identity that God chose to bring into this world to reveal himself as. Jesus is the name. So all of this has been leading up to what will you call God when you see him? What is his name? Imagine such a thing like the infinite, uncreated source of life chooses a body, chooses to be in a physical place where he's present everywhere, but he chooses to be in a physical place so that we can see him. And he chooses a name that we can relate to him by personally, because we have names. Such a fascinating thing. It's all revealed in Christ. But Jesus is the name revealed. We know that Jesus is Yahweh, and we're going to look at several places where that is, because he says many times that he's Yahweh. And of course, people don't seem to notice those times when they're arguing that Jesus said, oh, show me where in the Bible Jesus says that he's God. Well, I will show you. I'll show you plenty of places that are very clear. So the conclusion is Jesus is Yahweh manifest. Of course, Yahweh is multipersonal, but Jesus is Yahweh nevertheless. Now, I want to look at some interesting things regarding the name of Yahweh that we are talking about now. This is actually pretty pretty cool. If you've looked into this, I actually made a video about this, a short video about the name of Yahweh and how it has some very interesting things to say about the gospel. Hand behold, nail behold. The Tetragrammaton, which is the four-letter representation of the revealed name of God in Hebrew, was first written in an ancient form of Hebrew now referred to as Paleo-Hebrew or Paleo-Sinaitic script. Paleo-Hebrew, like other ancient written forms, is pictorial in nature. This provides meaning for words which is built up from pictorial symbols, which when combined express both a complete word and a combination of meanings. The, com the combined word for the tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, is often translated into English as I am who I am. Although this is, this is a poor translation. It's more like I am the one who causes to exist. I am the one who is type of thing. It's difficult to translate in English. 
It expresses the eternal presence and identity of God, as well as the other deep concepts as to his self-revealing nature. When taken as individual Paleo-Hebrew symbols, however, you get the following four representations. Hand, Yod, Behold, He, Nail, Wow, or Vav, Behold, He. Yod, He, Vav, He means hand, behold, nail, behold. What is the significance of this? When Jesus confronts Thomas after his resurrection, he says the words to him, put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand and place it in my hand, in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. John 20, verse 27. Of course, what is Thomas's response to this? He says, my Lord and my God. Now we looked at this for people who say that the, that the word God here was not referring to Jesus, but the Father. This is incorrect. This is we looked at this with the Granville Sharps rule and many other places like First Peter, where these things are used, where God and Savior are in the same sentence and is referring to Jesus. So yeah, the apostles believe that Jesus is God. Go check out that previous episode. But this is this is what I want to show you is that this these are the proto-Sinaitic characters. Hand behold, nail behold. If you read it, you know, of course Hebrew is written from or read from right to left. Look at the hand, look at the nail. So even within the name that, that God revealed to Moses, this is just, it's so fascinating. I really hope you can appreciate this with me because, so again, there's a multi-step successive revelation of God's name, of his identity, of who he is. At first, he didn't reveal it to Jacob, even though he revealed himself as God, he didn't reveal his name. Not the time yet. Then with Moses, he reveals his self-existent nature in a, in a particular verse, in a particular phrase, which we're going to read next with the Tetragrammaton. This particular phrase, Esher Aye Esher, means I am the one who, who is, who causes to exist. I am the source of being. Basically reveals his self-existent nature. But within this, <laughs> within this phrase, which is very much very profound and reveals God's self-existent nature, if you wrote it in proto-Sinaitic script, which is the original script that Moses was writing in for the Israelites, that was the original alphabet, it was a pictogram type of alphabet, if you write it in that alphabet, if you use the letters and consonants to basically write that name and create an abbreviation for it, you get this basically sentence that says, behold the hand, behold the nail. Look at the hand, i.e. incarnation, I'm going to be human. Look at the nail, I'm going to die for your sins. Isn't that fascinating? I just think that is so crazy. It's just so fascinating. Like how, it's just mind-blowing to see how all these things are coordinated and revealed. It's truly these are, these are the types of things that, for me, are evidence of an infinite intelligence that's written the Bible and that's coordinated all these things. It's really just profound. And, of course, the final revelation of God's name is Jesus, who is the Savior, who lived a perfect life, who came in the flesh, and now that's the name that everybody will bow to. But the Tetragrammaton, which is basically the four letters of God's name, we're going to read a little bit about the etymology, which is very important, because this ties into some sacred name stuff that I want to talk about. The Hebrew Bible explains it by the formula, Eye, Asher, Eye. I'm probably not pronouncing it the best, but 
the name of God revealed to Moses in Exodus 3, verse 14. This would frame YHWH, or Yahweh, as a derivation from the Hebrew triconsonantal root HYH, or Haya, meaning to be, to become, to pass. With a third person masculine, Y, Yahaya, Yahawa, equivalent to English He, or He. <laughs> I'm trying to go between two languages here, in place of the first person thereby affording translations as he who causes to exist, he who is, although this would elicit the form Y-H-Y-H, Y-H-Y-A, Hawa or Haya, not Y-H-W-H. To rectify this, some scholars propose that the tetragrammaton represents a substitution of the medial Y for W, an occasional attested practice in the biblical Hebrew as both letters function as basically letters that can substitute consonants. Others propose that the tetragrammaton derived instead from the triconsonal root hawa to be or to constitute with the final form eliciting similar translations as those derived from haya. As such, the consensus among modern scholars consists that Yahweh or YHWH represents a verbal form with the Y representing the third person masculine verbal prefix of the form Haya or YHY to be, as indicated in the Hebrew Bible. So they're trying to figure out where this tetragrammaton came from because the actual Hebrew, what is why I'm reading to you this? Because again, there's people who are very much about the sacred name. We'll talk about this in a second. You have to say it this way, you have to do it that way. Well, first off, the tetragrammaton is a derivation. It's not what God actually said. God said, Eyeh, Asher, Eyeh. Like, that's my name. That's what you can refer to me as. And of course, that's a series of words. And it's basically, I am the one who causes to exist. I am the self-existent one. That's my name. That's the name that you need to know right now. And they took that and they made a tetragrammaton out of it using either the verb Hawa or Haya, which means to cause, to exist, to be. It's the infinitive. And then they added a third-person masculine prefix, the Y, Yehawa, or Yehaya. And all these things were were basically passed down into through tradition. But you, what, Yahweh, what we say today, W-H-Y-H-W-H, wasn't actually what God said to Moses. It's an abbreviation. So very important to understand where this comes from because it's an abbreviation. God's actual name is Eye Asher Eye, that he revealed in Exodus. Now, of course, we know that through the New Testament, God's name is Jesus. That's what we refer to. Jesus, Jesus is the name, and that's very important. But the origin is, is a little more nuanced than that, and that's something to understand. But Jesus made claims to this name that was revealed to Moses a couple times. So I want to outline those. And one of them is John 8, 58, which is a very common one that we looked at. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Ego eimi. Now this is in Greek, ego eimi. And this is what was translated in the Septuagint, what we looked at, of Exodus 3, 14. So the Greeks or the Jews who translated Exodus 3, 14, eye asher eye, into Greek, for the Greek-speaking Jews at the time, translated that into ego emi ho'on. I am the one who causes to exist. I am the one who 
I am the being one, basically, I think is the more literal translation. I am the being one. It's very profound to think about. It's hard to figure it out in English. But ego e mi, ho on, ego e mi, I am. That's the infinitive, right? So Jesus attributes this to himself very intentionally in this discourse with the Pharisees, where they're saying like, oh, how did you, did you know Abraham? He said, yeah, before Abraham was, I am, meaning I existed before Abraham. I am, meaning I, I always exist. I am the being one. And they picked up stones to stone him. So they got what he was laying down. It, was, it wasn't just a weird way of saying things. He was being very intentional, attributing pre-existence to himself in this conversation, attributing the name of God to himself. Very, very important. You also have things like Revelation 1, 17 and 18 we'll look at where Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. But look, Jesus claimed to be God and he attributed these Old Testament names to himself. That's why they accused him of blasphemy. But for all the legalists who are all about sacred name, the Hebrew roots movement, all these people who say like, you know, you can't say God because that means Baal or you can't say Lord because that means Baal. And, you know, God is a pagan name from, you know, Germany. Or I, There's so many theories and so many people, the sacred name people are all about using this name over that name. You can't, you got to say Yeshua or Yehoshua or, you know, you have to say Hamashiach or whatever. Otherwise, you know, you're blaspheming. And it's just like, this is what I want to address. First and foremost, the name that God revealed to Moses isn't Yahweh. That's not what he said. He said, Eye Asher Eye. I am the being one. Ego emi ho'on. Right? And the Jews who translated that into Greek, who we would say would be inspired, right? You could also say that's in Greek. Ego emi ho'on. That's the name that God revealed to Moses. Because that was the that was the stage of the name. But the name is fully revealed in Jesus. So now we come to this idea of Yeshua versus Yehoshua versus Jesus. Now, I have to, uh, full kind of disclosure here, or I should say alert, under note, I've talked about this in great detail in my end time series, believe it or not, in the, in the episode on the Mark of the Beast. And why that's significant is because in the Mark of the Beast episode, I there are two examples that I go over in the Mark of the Beast on how not to look for the Mark of the Beast. Meaning, I use these examples as poor exegesis because people believe these things based on really poor hermeneutics and Bible studying skills. And one of those examples is this idea that Jesus is the name Jesus is is like the Antichrist. That's the false Christ that the Catholic Church invented. The real Jesus is Yeshua, Yehoshua. And so I break that down quite a bit in that episode. So I'm just going to touch on it here because, you know, it's, we don't need that much detail here, but if you want the full detail, go check the, that episode out. Go check it out anyway, because it should be very edifying for you, because most people are deceived about the mark of the beast and end times events in general. But nonetheless, I want to break this idea down of Yeshua, Yehoshua. So first off, Yeshua and Yehoshua are the same name, but just Yeshua's kind of more truncated version, but it's the name for Joshua. Now, very importantly, people think that Jesus is a made-up name that is somehow related to Zeus or, you know, Hail Zeus or all these conspiracy theories, which are completely wrong. 
Yeshua, when it's transliterated into Greek, is Jesus. Jesus. Because in Greek, they don't have certain pronunciations that they do in Hebrew and vice versa. Just like if you were to take, you know, certain words in English and try to say them in Spanish. There are combinations of words that do not do the same thing or letters that don't do the same thing in a different language. That's like linguistics 101. So when you're trying to transliterate a word or a name into a different language, you have to work with the grammatical rules of that language. And what happens when you transliterate Joshua or Yehoshua or Yeshua into Greek, you get Jesus. And we have proof of that from the Septuagint. I'm going to show you in the Septuagint here. This is Joshua 1 verse 10, just a sample verse, Greek Septuagint. And Joshua gave charge to the scribes of the people saying something there. Now, Joshua, this is the word Jesus in Greek right here. It's Jesus. So Joshua, which is a Hebrew name, Actually, this is English, but let's say this would be Yehoshua or Yeshua, because that was Joshua's name. When it was translated into Greek into the Septuagint, his name became what? It became Jesus. And there are many examples like this, even the Apocrypha, which is not inspired, but as a historical text, it's important to see how were people using language and grammar in antiquity. And you have plenty of examples of people named Joshua that were transliterated before Jesus's time as Jesus. So the idea that Jesus means hail Zeus or it's made up or it was whatever created by the Catholic Church, this is nonsense. The word Jesus was used for centuries before Jesus came on the scene because there were many Joshua's in the Bible and in the apocryphal texts that were also translated into Greek. All those instances of Joshua, Yeshua, Yehoshua, were transliterated as Jesus. Very, very important. So what's the point? Don't listen to these people that say, oh, it's it's this name. You got to pray in this name or you have to say Yehoshua or Yeshua or there's so many different variations and pronunciations. Don't listen to that. The sacred name stuff is nonsense. It really is. Jesus has one name. Now in Spanish, you will call him Jesus. Do you think that God's going to punish you for, for not saying his name in the Hebrew? This is total legalism. That's not what God wanted. Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. There is neither Jew nor Greek in the church, in Christ. We are unified. Now, uni unity means you can call on Jesus in the language, uh, in, in, on, in the name of the language that you're in. So if you're in Spain, you can call on Jesus. If you're in Africa, in Nigeria, you can call on Jesus. If you're in China, you can call on Jesus in your own tongue. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful thing that God's name can be transliterated into every tongue. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So if every tongue will confess, like we read in Corinthians, what does that mean? That means that every tongue, meaning every language, will confess that Jesus is Lord. But how can every language confess 
if there's only one way to pronounce the name. Do you see the problem and why this is refuted very easily? But a couple of final thoughts to wrap this up. A lot of interesting things that we talked about today. I hope it's been interesting for you. These things are just so fascinating to study because they give us glimpses into the nature of Christ's being as Yahweh. We saw with the last episode that the angel of Yahweh is God. Absolutely. There's no, there's no doubt about that. We see more shadows of this in this episode through the word of Yahweh, through the name of Yahweh. All these things were designed, I believe, it's very clear, to create this longing, this desire to know the name of God, to, to know who is this person that is going to be God in the flesh, that will manifest the name of God, that we can look to him personally, that we'll have a name that we can relate to, that we can be brothers and sisters. This was the longing that was created for thousands of years, since Genesis 3, when God announced the gospel. And then... All these things were revealed in Christ when he came and he revealed the name of God. He made the name manifest. He's the word of God. He is God. So fascinating. Now, I want to I close with a couple of very important verses where Jesus reveals that he is the God of the Old Testament. Very clearly so. And a couple of examples are as follows. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. See now that I, even I, am he. And there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. That's Yahweh speaking. John 10, verse 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He's the one that gives life, and nobody can deliver you out of his hand. And in this case, it's kind of the opposite. It's the other side of the coin that he's saying is that he's the one who gives you life and nobody will snatch you out of his hand, meaning nobody's going to take you out of his hand, just like nobody can deliver you out of his hand if you're on the wrong side. If you reject Jesus, nobody can deliver you out of his hand. He's the judge. But if you accept him, nobody can snatch you out of his hand. You see how this is a, a touching on these Old Testament attitudes? Exodus 34, verse 11 through 12, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep, and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, and when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. Who is speaking? The Lord God. Now let's look at John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Who is the good shepherd? It's Jesus. But in Ezekiel, Yahweh, the Lord God, is speaking that he's the shepherd that's going to go after his sheep. So how do you make of that? Well, you make of it that Jesus is Yahweh, that he's the eternal God. Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall to it, recall to mind you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it and I will do it. So God is, God is speaking very clearly so, telling you that there's nobody like him who declares the end from the beginning and accomplishes it. Bible prophecy is one of the main pillars of the, val the validity and the veracity and the truthfulness of the scriptures. 
And if you study Bible prophecy, you realize that it was written by God. This is a text that is written supernaturally over thousands of years. But you have these situations in the New Testament where Jesus gives you in advance what's going to happen, identifying himself as God. John 13, verse 19, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it comes, when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Again, all these things are pointing to Old Testament attitudes. So you know that I am God. I'm not just, you know, anybody. I am God. I am he who tells you what comes from ancient times and what comes to pass. John 14, verse 29. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Again, he's telling you the future. He's telling you exactly what's going to happen. Matthew 24, verse 25. See, I have told you beforehand. <coughs> Excuse me. This is the old uh, end times chapter where he's telling you all these things are going to happen from thousands of years ago, right? That was 2,000 years ago. Now, in Isaiah 44, a little bit earlier, God says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Again, another instance of plurality, which is the two powers in heaven. There's no other way to explain these things. But God says, I am the first, I am the last, besides me there is no God. So there is no God besides the one who says what? I am the first, and I am the last. And yet, look at this, he's speaking in the, in the first person, but but this is two persons listed. Thus says Yahweh, the king of Israel, and his redeemer, Yahweh of hosts. Two people inferred here, and yet one person is speaking in a unified sense. So again, very fascinating. But what's the point? There is no God besides the one who is the first and the last, right? Well, in Revelation 1, verse 17 through 18, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, meaning that's not the Father, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is Jesus speaking. But Jesus says that he is the first and the last. Well, according to Yahweh, there is no other God besides him. He is the first and the last, which is, again, a, a, a title that refers to self-existence. He's the first, meaning he was before all things. He's the creator. He's self-existent. And he's the last, meaning he's going to outlive everybody. Now, of course, we're all going to live forever together with him, but that's the point, is he's outlives everybody. So he's the last. So he's the first and the last. And now Jesus is saying, I'm the first and the last. I died. Well, wait a minute. The father didn't die. The son must have been the one who died. So therefore, God must be multi-personal. And Jesus is Yahweh, made flesh. Exodus 3.14, we talked about this where God says the name, basically, the, the self-existent name. And in John 8.58, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. So you see, what does this all say to you? The Bible teaches that Jesus is God. It gives you clue after clue after clue through the angel of the Lord, through the name, through the word. All of these are a revelation of Jesus. So I hope you've learned something today because the Bible from page to page, from cover to cover, especially in the Old Testament, testifies over and over again that Jesus is God.